0: Colossians chapter 1, and I will be reading from verse 15 through verse 23. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, <clears throat> for by him all things were created. <clears throat> in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Lord, as we contemplate this evening, our need for you to have become incarnate, we ask that you would help our minds to wrestle through the truths that we're about to look at because they are not simple But at the same time, Lord, they are vital for our life. And even though there is difficulty that comes through, comes with this kind of study, we can know and be confident and assured that your word teaches us these things. And therefore, Lord, we can stand upon these truths in our faith, confident that this is the means by which we have Eternal life, Lord, through you, our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. So lead and guide our thoughts. Please minimize distractions and help us to have our hearts and minds centered right here, right now. May this be the only thing in our minds. In your name, amen. This week I had an interesting... um, several conversations. I I have interesting conversations every week, but there was three that really stood out this week for me. And these three conversations were all with Christians, all with professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all people who would affirm and yes and amen the essential truths of the faith and Yet all three of these individuals at one time or another in the conversation said something along the lines of, well, I love this time of year and Jesus is all good and I love that we celebrate him, but I don't like the focus on sin. I don't like the idea that I'm a sinner. Or yesterday my conversation was, I hate to go into a church and have the preacher say, we're all sinners here. And I laughed, especially yesterday, because I happened to be sitting at a, a place here in town preparing this sermon and preparing exactly the fact that we need the incarnation because we're all sinners. And I pointed that out to him, and he kind of had a chuckle about it. And he's like, well, I guess I won't be coming to your church tomorrow. And <laughs> I said, well, you should anyways. But um, there is a very real sense where many Christians don't like the idea that they're sinners, don't like the idea that there is such a need for Christ that if Christ himself isn't the one who came and became a man, And came to atone or to substitute himself in our place for sins, then we have absolutely no hope of salvation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says. I wrestle with that often in my own mind. I can't really remember a time in my own Christian walk where I was in the place where I didn't want to hear the fact that I was a sinner. Now it could be because I had one of those I have one of those interesting testimonies that people like to hear. I personally am more interested in the person who's been a Christian their whole life and has walked with the Lord with in this whole life, but I had a point in time where I was clearly not a Christian and had a born again conversion experience, and from there have walked with the Lord. And so, my time of living in sin in the world, dead to my dead to God, is something that's very real to me. And still, I look back and have not fond memories of, but I certainly look in fondness of what God brought me out of. And so because of that, when I come to passages or when I come to topics like this, we're looking at tonight, the need for the incarnation, there's something in me that just gets so excited and energized and riveted to the text. I want to hear these kind of truths and I wrestle with why don't more people want that? Why don't they want to hear truths about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and why it's necessary for us. Instead, they'd rather hear other sermons and have their ears tickled, right? That's what 2 Timothy teaches us. Here in our text that we just looked at, we're not going to spend the bulk of our time here, but let's just walk through a little bit. Last week, we looked at the idea that Jesus is God and how that we as believers who have been born again by the Spirit of God are caught up within intertrinitarian trinitarian acts of love. And we looked at how that this was all so big and vast in its importance and its scope, not just in history eternally, but in our lives and how it affects us and impacts us. So we looked at texts like the one we just looked at. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. Everything was created by him. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead, and that everything he might have preeminence, which is what firstborn means, not necessarily that he was literally the first created being as some cults would have us to believe verse 20 though let's start in verse 19 for in him in jesus all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Stop right there for just a minute. Here we see in a microcosm our need for Christ. We were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In that one verse, in verse 21, we find summed up so much of what exists in the entirety of Scripture, right? You can go all the way back to the very beginning and after the fall happened, you see very quickly how mankind devolved into the place where God makes a commentary on humanity in Genesis chapter 6 and says that mankind's thoughts are only evil continually. We're always evil and only evil continually. It is one of the greatest condemnations on mankind that exists in any writing, not not just to mention the scriptures. But as we go through the pages of the Bible, we find this theme coming up over and over again. So the flood, even though it came and it wiped out all of humanity that exists, save those few people that were there on the ark with Noah, that that sin was not washed away from the planet. Because sin remained within Noah, his three sons, and all of their wives. So even though those eight people made it through the waters, they didn't make it through having been cleansed of sin. They just brought sin right along to it. And so very quickly, we see Noah getting drunk and something happening with his son that we're not sure what that's about. And then even very, right after that, you see the table of nations where they decide, you know what? We don't want to spread out and take over dominion like God called us to. Let's just build a city right here. Heck, let's just build a city all the way up to heaven. And we'll make this giant, giant tower and make a name for ourselves, right? Right? Of course, God came down and he scattered the peoples and divided them by giving them different languages and different tongues to speak. And so they were dispersed from that place and couldn't continue to build there. And from there we go on and on and find that the Bible is in a lot of ways a commentary on the lawlessness of man, the sinfulness of man how bad off we actually are. I mean, it doesn't take very long to get into the book of Judges. And there you find even in God's own people who he set apart by giving them the law, right? Here's the law. Here's the holy standard. Here's everything I've commanded you to do. Live like this and you will prosper. You will flourish. You will, to use the deuteronomical language, be blessed. And yet they just immediately upon the hearing of the law, it's almost like they turned around, had the wax in their ears still and went on and lived how they saw fit rather than following what God had laid out. And in Judges, it's just bad to worse to worse to worse. And at the very end of that book, it says everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. Because there was no king in Israel. And I would just like to add maybe there was no God in their hearts too. That's the commentary on mankind. Jeremiah when he's prophesying to the nation of Israel says, Now, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? Or can you who are evil do good things? Of course the answer to all three of those questions is a categorical no. We cannot. We are evil upon evil upon evil. The Bible's commentary upon mankind is quite clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we have no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important, okay? Jesus Christ, we read about it right here. For in him, in Christ, verse 19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. Jesus Christ is not a demigod. He is not a under God. He is God upon God upon God. As much God as the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the fullness of the God had dwelt there within Jesus Christ. And through him, he came to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus Christ. This is crazy stuff. But the good is crazy stuff. God Almighty, in order to save man and honor his own justice, his own holiness, his own righteousness, God's integrity was at stake. There was no other means by which man could be saved other than God himself coming down and taking upon himself a perfect human nature. Being 100% completely God still. In many ways, he was still eternal. In many ways, he was still all-knowing. And all, he was still everything that God is, but yet he took upon himself this human nature. Think about that. God had... One point in a very infinitesimal finite space, that, that, that egg that was inside Mary, God came into human existence. So God was still God and yet something new had happened. And that God took upon himself the form of a human and being In flesh, from that point all the way on, he was in every single way human of human. He was a person who thought like we do, who lived like we do, who felt like we do. He was physically human, he was psychologically human, he was emotionally human. He was in every way that we are, completely and totally human yet without one single thing that defines us. And that's what we were just talking about, our own sin. But in order for humans to be saved, a human had to be the one who would come (laughs) and be the intercessor and be the one who would take the place for humanity. In Hebrews chapter 2, hot dog, what a great book Hebrews is. But in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Now, Surely it is not for angels that God helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because, you see, he himself had suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Christ had to come and be made like us in every respect, it says here, in every respect. We talked a little bit about this last week, but the temptations that Jesus went through there in Matthew chapter 4 and Um, the corresponding other places in the gospels were very real temptations. But yet, and on top of that, we see later on here in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And I'll come back to verse 16 in a second. But in every respect, he had to be made like us. There's no point upon which anybody will ever be able to come before the Lord Almighty there on the day of judgment and say, Oh, well, yeah, you were pretty good, Jesus. Yeah, you did an awful lot. But you don't understand me and what I went through. There's never going to be anybody who is able to say those words, think those thoughts. He is a high priest who has in always been tempted as we are because in every way, apart from sin, he has been tempted as we are. Now think about this. We all experience temptation. I'm not the first one to originate what I'm about to say. I don't remember where I got it or I Tell you where I got it. But you've probably heard similar things in sermons before. As you battle temptation, every single one of us has our own proclivities and desires that we wrestle with on a regular basis. Some of those sins we overcome very easily. Some of the sins, it's something, you know, we have a thought in our mind, we have that desire grip us, but we are able to resist that and, as it were, flee from that particular temptation but we have these other ones that are nagging and cling to us that we come back to over and over and over and we wrestle with and you know the weight of those temptations beloved you fight you fight you fight and it's hard and it's hard and then you give in and you know the harder you fight against that the harder it becomes to overcome that and you will eventually give in and you will eventually succumb unfortunately But good news, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with you because he endured every temptation to the end and never succumbed to sin in any way, shape, or form. So if you think you have it hard, Christ had it infinitely harder because he endured every temptation that comes to each one of us as natural human beings and he overcame every single one of them. He was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin so that he could be our faithful high priest. This is why we can have confidence when we look to the cross and we see Christ's atoning work on the cross On our behalf, I can be sure that I'm saved because I am confident that Christ endured everything for my sake. Meaning, God punished him and it was accepted by God the Father, that punishment for all of my sins. Christ went through all of the wrath of God that I deserve. And you might think, and I've heard this said before, well, come on, he was hanging on the cross for what? Like, few hours? How could he have infinitely atoned in in every way perfectly for all of the sins of all of the people who would ever be saved? Well, that's why we need the incarnation. Because only God could do that. Let's say Jesus was empowered by God and was a perfect human, and lived a perfect life, and had absolutely lived through that life, through the power of God, but he was not God himself, just a man empowered by God, with really awesome superpowers to get through sin, and not commit any type of sin in any way, shape, or form. When he came to the end of his life, all he could possibly do is atone for one other person. That's all he could do. Now that's not assuming something we're going to look at here in a minute in Romans chapter 5. And that's that you are in Adam and therefore you are a sinner because you exist. That's not assuming that. (laughs) That's assuming everybody's neutral. That everybody has an equal chance but yet we all fall. But yet super dude came along and he was able to save one person if he wasn't God you see. Because he's just one human. A really really good one. The best of ones. But he wasn't God, but because Jesus was God, He could not only atone for the sins of one individual, but for all individuals, because He bore the very wrath of God that we all deserve in that moment, not only of time, but spiritually that we deserve for all eternity. Now, if you think that's a head scratcher, you're right. It's just as much a head scratcher as how does God become man and be a perfect man and yet still be completely God. You see, these are the kind of big truths that just compel me so much more that Christianity is true because it's hard to explain. In fact, it's unexplainable, isn't it? But the next thing he's able to do before we go and look at Romans chapter 5, we saw in both of these places here in Hebrews, is that he is a sympathetic and merciful high priest. He is sympathetic and merciful. I, I've known, I, unfortunately, so many Christians, and it isn't just our camp, our little religious tribe, or whatever you want to call it, but there, there's lots of people out there who they have been born again. I don't doubt they're genuine believers in Christ, but and there is no grace or so very little grace and so very little mercy that I, I, I don't see how that they can be following Christ the way that he lays out. Because Christ is so gracious to me, so long suffering with me, so merciful with me. Like I said earlier, and you guys understand this, we have the same sins that we struggle with day in, day out, and you would think that the Lord would just pull his hand and be like, aren't you over this yet? Come on, people. But he's never like that. <laughs> Praise God he's never like that. I have no hope if he's ever like that. Instead, he sympathizes with me in my weakness So then let us draw with confidence near the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The Christian walk is a walk, definitely, of pursuing holiness. Absolutely. But it is not a walk pursuing holiness in exclusion of receiving mercy and grace all the time. I need mercy and grace, I'm going to sin. I'm You guys know me long enough. I will let and I have let many of you down and I'll continue to do that. It's not my goal. (laughs) It's not an aim that I have that I get up in the morning and consider how can I let Nick down today (laughs) kind of thing but it's just me. It's just I'm a person and I need Christ's mercy and weakness and I need to I come to his throne of grace all the time and ask him for mercy and grace to help in the time of need because he doesn't always give me relief from my sin, right? We sing about it. Oh Lord, I ask that mercy and grace would grow and that I would be relieved from this, but yet instead what does he do? It feels like with his own thumb, he pours out more more pain and he reveals the inward evils of my heart more and more and more. And I say, Lord, are you going to crush me? No, this is the way I show you how much you still need me. We come to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. Because I need grace, I need grace, I need grace, I need grace. And I need it not just from God, but I need it from you. And you need it from me. And as we grow in the mercy and grace of God, we understand this more and more. And we see, boy, the sin that I have is so great and so monumental. Christ has forgiven me. I therefore ought to extend grace to my brethren around me. Holding them up, certainly, certainly fearing lest I fall into the same temptation they do, certainly, but I'm willing to walk with you through your sin as you sin, not extending judgment, but rather mercy and grace to you. Well, I could go on and on there, but there's one more aspect of who we are as human beings that necessitates the cross. Now, I already spoke of what we actualize in our lives in terms of sin. But the question has to come behind that, beyond that, why do we sin the way we do? We all sin, we all acknowledge it. We have little funny phrases that we'll use to try to soften the blow. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, just let boys be boys or, you know, those kind of phrases. But those minimize the fact that there's something deeper going on because I don't have to teach any of my children how to sin. Never have? All of a sudden it's there. What the heck, little kid? We're doing catechism. We're reading our Bibles. We're singing hymns. What, what's, where'd this come from? How's this sin coming out of you? Where does that come from? Well, there's something within our nature that tells us More than the actual sins we commit that condemn us. Let me say that again. There is something within us more than the actual sins that we commit that condemns us. People are fine and okay with saying, well, yeah, you sinned, therefore you did wrong. What people aren't okay with is you are a sinner by nature, you were born a sinner. People aren't okay with that. And that brings me back to the beginning illustration that I gave. Why I think people don't want to hear when they come into church, we're all sinners. Because people want to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And so they think about themselves as not being sinners, but as really good people. Or maybe at worst, I'm just neutral, like I already talked about. And, and there's this, you know, how am I going to make it? They're born in innocence and, and they're not bad, not good. Well, let's see where they go, right? But no, everybody falls into sin. So where does that come from? Well, the Bible's pretty clear about where that comes from. The big fancy word, if you're not familiar with, is original sin. Okay? It doesn't mean the very first sin, which is what, you know, you might be inclined to think when you hear that phrase, original sin. What it means is that in your origin, you are a sinner. That's maybe not the most accurate way to describe it, but you get it that in your origin, when you were born from your very first existence, even before that, you're a sinner. Why? Because we are all descended from Adam. So grab your Bibles and look at Romans with me, chapter five. Romans five. Romans five, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who is the type of the one who was to come? So, starting out, sin came into the world through one man, through Adam. Notice he does not use Eve here. Okay, Adam was the one who was created by God to be the head, the representative of all of humanity. He, if we're going to talk about anybody who was neutral or anybody who had a free will, it was Adam. Nobody has free will besides Adam. And we don't even understand what kind of will he actually had. We only have two chapters that really talk about Adam. So it doesn't do us any favors to try to read into and speculate. Well, was his freedom really a freedom or whatnot? We don't know. But what we do know is that God is just, and he created Adam with the ability, we do believe, to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also to partake of the tree of life, which is why he had to be barred from it. But here, the Bible condemns us all in Adam. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam knew who he was as the federal head of all humanity. And yet he still determined and chose to fall into sin. And so death reigned. Now it says here, even though the law wasn't given until Moses, everyone still died because the wages of sin is death. And so even though we didn't have a law on two tablets of stone, Romans 2 tells us we did have it on our hearts. In fact, Romans chapter 3 says that all the world stands condemned before God because of the law is written on our hearts and we know it, we know it, we know it. But no one does righteousness. No one seeks after God. No one follows after him. Everyone follows after their own ways. Why? Because we are in Adam. We are in Adam. Verse 15, but... The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sins, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there for just a second. There are two groups of people that Paul is presenting here. Adam And everybody in Adam, his condemnation brought death to everybody who's in Adam. But then there's Christ. And Christ, because of Adam's sin, came. And what he does is he conquers over, triumphs over Adam's sin. And therefore, everybody who's in him receives mercy and grace and the free gift of eternal life. So it is greater than Adam. Because Adam, all he can do is he can bring death to everybody who's in him. That's the best it can possibly be. Now you might not be as bad as you could possibly be. But at the same time, all you're ever going to be in Adam is someone who has earned the wages of sin. And that's death. But in Christ, and those who are in him receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness and we reign through him. Verse 18, therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Let me stop there for just a second. One trespass. Adam partook of the fruit that he was forbidden to partake of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Christ's one act of righteousness, you might say, well, what is that? He had to live a perfect life, didn't he? Certainly. But ultimately, his one act of righteousness was there displayed on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that one act of righteousness, him bearing our sin, bearing our judgment in our place is the act that justifies us. The act that saves us. Everything else leading up to that made him able to save us. But it was that one act of bearing our sin that actually was the work of salvation. Therefore, verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through the righteous leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the law was given to us. The law was given to humanity. The law was given to people to show us how desperately in need we are. People still died before the law came. But people probably thought more highly of themselves even then than they ought to think. Because they didn't necessarily have that external law. But death still reigned. That's the important point of note. But when sin increased, that just means grace increased all the more. The deeper we see ourselves as sinners, the greater we see the greatness and the glory of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greater we see the mercy of our God, the greater we see the mercy of Jesus, the greater we see our salvation. So why do we need the incarnation? There's twofold reason that we looked at here tonight. Number one is that you sin. I sin. We actively do it. All the time, we continue on in it. Unfortunately, as we grow in sanctification, we become perhaps a little bit more sanctified each and every day. But until the day where we are glorified, we still have to travel through this life struggling with our sin. And that continually reminds us of our need for the Savior because of the second reason we needed a a Savior. And that was because we are by nature sinners. And unless our nature changes... We're going to continue in that, which is why it's so vital that we must be born again. Because if we are not born again, then we've only been born once and that being born once leaves us dead in Adam, leaves us condemned in Adam. But in Christ, as we've been born again, we have eternal life and a blessed life through him. Lord, we look at texts like this and we think of the vastness and richness that we find in the idea that you would come down and condescend to become a human to become a human to take on flesh so that you might bring us to salvation Lord, you are so, It's, it's beyond belief and this is why so many people scoff at and unless your spirit opens their eyes and opens their minds to it, they cannot believe these truths. And so, Lord, we who believe and trust in you today, we praise you. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to these truths. You have uh, revealed them to us. You have caused us to be born again in this new nature that we have. Is now a nature that rejoices in you and praises you and is so grateful that we are sinners, but yet we are saved. Lord, help us to continue to live lives of holiness, but constantly leaning on your mercy and grace that we might be these vessels who glorify and honor you who have saved us. God, it is such a wonderful, wonderful place to be. We thank you for this holiday season. And may we not just Consider the fact that you became human and were a baby in a manger. Those are truths. But yet, at the same time, and even more so, you came that you might seek and save that which was lost. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.